Howdy folks, it's your old pal Bennett Glace, that distinguished soldier of cinema you all know and love, reporting for duty. I'm filling in for Craig Wright once again on a new episode of Split Picks, and boy is he going to be mad when he sees all the cigar ash in his desk. Back in February, Split Tooth Media's film editor, Brett Wright, published an interview with Adi Yahich, a writer-director whose excellent debut feature, Things We Like, calls to mind the work of site favorites like Frank Ross and Andrew Pajowski, and has us all eager to see what's next for the Boston University alum. In anticipation of Things We Like's premiere at the Philadelphia Independent Film Festival later this month, Yach joins me to discuss the film and one of the esoteric indie classics that informs it. Enjoy. with filmmaker Adi Yahich, the director of The Great Things We Like, premiering later this month at the Philadelphia Independent Film Festival. How's it going, Adi? Hey, it's going real well. Happy to be on. Yeah, and we're pairing Things We Like with Tom Noonan's excellent, still underseen, What Happened Was. Moving chronologically, let's start with uh, What Happened Was. So I rewatched this film a couple times in preparation for this, and I realized I'd never seen this new re-release remaster that makes it look like a completely different film. I've, I've seen the shitty VHS rip three times, which I kind of like. And I had also really misremembered it as like a date from hell sort of a movie. It's really, uh, it's really something much different than that, way more interesting. Um, you know, for, uh, and you know, for the benefit of uh, viewers who aren't familiar with the film, would you mind uh, describing kind of the basic premise and some of the qualities that you think uh, set it apart? Yeah, sure, sure. So basically it's, uh, well, not a date from hell film, but the entire thing is basically... Take, happens over the course of a date. But I think it's really just the masterpiece of acting and of, I mean, I guess his word's a bit of a cliche, but of character development. And the way Tom Noonan sort of weaves together all these flaws and, and uh, flubs and all these, you know, little fleeting moments between them, I think is just a masterpiece like no other. Yeah. Flaws and flubs are, of course, something that I'm totally unfamiliar with <laughs> as somebody who, uh, who gets it right the first time every time. Uh, how'd you first encounter the film? Was it, uh, was it one you saw in Ray Carney's class? Yeah, it was in Carney's class. And if you guys don't know who Ray Carney is, he's a professor of film at my uh, alma mater, Boston University. And he's definitely one of the greatest minds in film that I've ever encountered, especially on the, the writing about film side. He has written some great critique about Cassavetes, about uh, Brisson, uh, but also about Noonan. Um, so that's where I came across is this this film for the first time. And I also saw that uh, VHS version on it was played on a VHS tape. I think the top oh. and bottom like of the of the screen, like you couldn't even see anything because of how old the VHS was. So when I watched it again after the the the, the 4K restoration i was surprised about, about the fact that when you watch that movie you're actually supposed to see things um, <laughs> which is i'm, I'm mostly joking because it is really well shot but yeah that's how i came across it and it definitely opened my eyes to a whole new way of doing film and creating meaning um that i hadn't really experienced beforehand because i don't really think anything was really like this movie before tom noonan created it i guess no, yeah, and I'm, I, I like I was saying, I'm basically at a loss for films or filmmakers to compare it to. Uh, it takes you know a stock event uh, to people who 
know each other sort of going on a date but the ways that the directions the conversation goes and the kind of things that are revealed about the characters and how they're revealed is so unusual and you think you kind of have the characters pegged when they first show up particularly tom noonan at least i did because like i don't know tom noonan usually plays a specific sort of a character yeah and it's clear you know it's clear from the beginning that he fancies himself a certain sort of a guy and she has a certain sort of idea of him but yeah the, the way those things kind of erode uh throughout an agonizing 90 minutes, and I say that in a good way, uh, is, is, is really impressive. Um, I, uh, you know, he, he subverts, like, everything. Even, like, the beginning is subversive. You take this kind of cliche shot of someone, like, slapping their alarm clock, and it's this weird-looking alarm clock. And I think, nowadays, like, funny, like, furniture and stuff is such a cliche of, like, Sundance core movies. And this this movie, I think, won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance when that meant a different sort of a thing. That's such a cliche now. You know, everyone thinks of, like, Juno talking on the hamburger phone. But I I think Tom Noonan got out ahead of that cliche, and I think it counted as, you know, a, a new development that someone having kind of, like, kooky furniture like that. And I like, I like the way more and more interesting bits of decor are sort of revealed in the apartment as well. It becomes, you're not only doing this kind of, like, psychic excavation and 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 you know exploration but you're also kind of as you're seeing more and more of the set you're getting all these different facets of the characters too which i don't know maybe sounds like sort of a cliche but trust me folks you've not seen it done like this yeah no i i think uh what what the the first 40 seconds to a minute of this movie showed me the first time i watch it is that cliches in regards to like what you're actually doing is like like the whole alarm clock thing and that whole sequence is such a like the morning sequence is such yeah, a cliche, it, yeah. right? But it's only a cliche if you if you do it in a, in a certain way. You know what I mean? Like you could do it in a way where it's not cliche. Like with anything that's a cliche, if you do it in a different way, you can make it feel different and new and independent. And that's what I think that he does really in those first five minutes. Like I think there's a bunch of other movies that you know have the the alarm clock thing or have this sort of kooky furniture setup, but they don't feel the way this one feels. And I know that's a somewhat unset, somewhat uh, sort of imperfect way of saying it, but if you watch it, you'll know what I mean. It's a tough film to describe, but almost every review I've read of it, even from like critics I like, I, it sometimes feels like we watch a different movie or they, they, they find sort of different things about it. Because I, I, I think it's really like a funnier film than people give it credit for she has a couple lines early on when they're when they're first kind of sitting down to dinner and she talks about having like a bunch of siblings she just like really sort of like brashly says yeah never a dull moment with that shit and you can tell he's sort of taken aback uh and it's like little little character moments like that i think come across really well i think to go on that point i think it's a really hard movie to write about because i think what a, a lot of what critics try to do is create general themes or general um, feelings throughout like 20 to 30 minutes of the movie, if that makes sense. Like they're trying to sort of unify it, but it's just a movie that, that you can't unify because if, if like I could, I could describe this movie to anybody and say, Oh, it's just a really awkward date. Right. And that would be one way of unifying it, but then you would be missing 99% of what actually happened. So I, that's why I think is so, that's what I think is so interesting about this movie is that every moment is changing. Like every 30 seconds is different from the previous 30 seconds. So it's incredibly hard to unify in that way. You just have to feel it. It's a movie that's meant to be felt more than thought about or written about, you know. 
which is why I kind of like the hazy VHS presentation because it it gives it a yeah a, just a sort of a like a vibey quality um, for for lack of a better word I, the word I really don't like that I find myself imply, uh, applying uh, fairly often um, it's obviously also kind of a hard movie to cut a trailer for as we've seen from the two attempts uh, <laughs> the first one is cut like a thriller it's crazy I don't I don't actually think I've watched the very the first one. Oh, if you've never seen it, I will. Uh, uh, it's highly recommended. It um, it takes so many lines out of context and every like kind of voyeuristic shot from the film and stitches it together as if you're watching uh, a movie about a woman who goes on a date with a guy she gradually reveals is like a serial killer who's been stalking her or something. Like it's it's very much like a guy got this and was like, all right, we got a movie about a woman who goes on a date with Tom Noonan. All right, all right, all right. And it's crazy and it's it's very funny. Like having seen the film to watch the trailer because you do recognize all the shots and you're like okay yeah some of this is unsettling and you know it is a movie it, it is a movie where the conversations take crazy detours and you you know you don't know what to think of the characters you're you're you know sitting with but to, to see it framed as a uh you know a, a conventional thriller is so bananas but that second trailer the, with the second uh, them trailer on the couch different yeah they're just on a couch talking and i think by the second one, also probably because of the notoriety the film already had, they didn't have to try to make it. Uh, they didn't try. They didn't have to try to sell it as anything. They could just say, "Hey, this is just a movie where two people talk, and you're going to like it, so watch it." Um, but in the first one, maybe they felt the need to to sell it in some way. But from my experience making trailers, although I don't have too much, um, you're you're always going to lie about your movie in some way. It's impossible to be completely truthful in a trailer, and I think. Um, I've sort of realized that I, I I'm not in the in the filmmaking industry for the sake of making trailers, so I'm just gonna try my best and uh, put something together. But they're 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 such a hard thing to figure out because you're always you're always you're always missing something, and if you're giving too much, then you know you're 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 ruining the movie in a different way. So they're really hard things to 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 master, I guess. And I don't think I don't think. It, uh, regardless how good this movie is, I don't think either of the two trailers really uh, are masterful works. No, yeah, no. Even that second trailer, which you know does a does a better job of kind of giving you a sense of the sort of movie you're in. It's it's like kind of it's a few seconds of them talking, and then it's mostly like him kind of like sitting awkwardly as we see kind of quotes from critics, and those obviously do a good job of like selling you on the film. I think one is from like Charlie Kaufman talking about how much he loved it, and you're like, okay, if it's you know a film that resonates with Charlie Kaufman, I, I have some idea of what I'm in for. But um, I feel like selling the movie as this movie where like Tom Noonan doesn't know what to say is very misleading because it's an awkward movie. Like you'll see awkward as one of the first words people will use to describe it, but it's not awkward because they lack for things to say. To one another it's not awkward because they're like sitting on opposite sides of the couch if anything it's awkward because neither of them ever shuts up you know they're both they both can't stop talking they're both revealing constantly way too much about themselves and how they think about you know how they relate to other people yeah, and their or, opinions of other people or they're 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 revealing so much of what they want the other to think about them and i think that's uh, really interesting you know um and how that differs what newton does so well is they're, they're having these characters talk about things to with the goal of making the other person think a certain thing about them but they're failing at doing that too uh and that's what's interesting about it yeah, it's interesting like she she wants him to appreciate that like she recognizes that he's smart and he's constantly like nagging her when he comes back with stuff like that exactly. he's constantly like oh you know all oh, those jokes are stupid all oh, stuff like that yeah absolutely i um i really like the the 
the varying kind of shades of like surrealism we get here it's, it's another uh, respect in which I, I really don't know who to compare the film to it's sort of like light bits of surrealism um charlie kaufman is really a little bit too surrealistic i think he maybe has some of the the kind of tone down i don't know i think it it's one of the better movies about the kind of like alienating quality of like living in a city living in like an apartment too i i've seen the the, the compositions described as hopper-esque and they definitely do look like edward hopper paintings at times you know people just sort of standing at windows and uh people standing at kind of opposite sides of the rooms with this sort of gulf of uh you know modernist empty space between them you know yeah whenever i think about those those shots there's a lot of shots where he shoots in outside the apartment that you're in into other apartments and he does an interview where he talks about that and he was like yeah we just set up the camera and we just started shooting things that we saw and then we would go to that building and ask for a release to put it in the movie so it just you know i think that's uh such a indie film way of making something happen but what I, what I like about that is that he is how he stitches a completely different meaning from something than what actually exists in the real world, which is what you're doing, you know, which is what movies do in general. But I think that was uh, that was interesting to figure out that they didn't plan any of those. They just kind of all happened. Um, mm-hmm. And, he you know, you, you put it together. He put it together in the in the editing room. Yeah, and they work really well. There's one in particular uh, when she's like, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this scene later. But when she's she's reading uh, an excerpt from her like story, and she's talking about like a woman like dancing in a club, and he suddenly like flashes to like his he's looking at like a a TV across the way, and it's like women like dancing on a stage, and it's him like sort of, it's him like trying to picture the scene, and he can only do so through imagining it on television or like you know looking across because I, I don't know I, I find it hard to believe he's seeing those people's tvs that closely and then not to be the cinema sense guy and later on he even says something to the effect of i don't talk about anything i haven't seen on tv or i don't know anything about anything i haven't seen on tv so it's like i don't know just such a such an interesting you know uh, left field way to you know suggest how he is trying to come to terms with what he's hearing and trying to you know envision it yeah, so with the surrealism in this movie, I think they take a very interesting approach to trying to, you know, solve the problem of how do you show what someone's feeling or thinking, you know, when you're just looking at their face. And throughout most of the movie, I mean, I, like, this, the surrealism in the movie only happens in a few moments. But when it does, it completely shifts the, the tone and the feeling of the movie from being something where you're, you feel like you're just watching it happen to being like, oh, I'm in this person's mind now. Like that's that's sort of what it does, at least to me. Like I think when when you're when you're in that that uh, I don't want to spoil too much. When you're in the the horror scene, let's call it uh-huh. of the movie, he's trying to. I think the 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 way it's shot is just trying to put you into this person's mind rather than oh, I'm just watching something happen. Yeah, he really knows when to deploy them too um it's there 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 are times when the camera's really active where it's almost like a, like an early like coen brothers film or something it's like floating around and they, the one that uh comes to mind is like really early on we get this sort of like swish pan that takes her from i, I think like like outside of her apartment into her apartment like into the hallway we go from like kind of one flickering light to another and she's talked about how or she talks about how you know all she's lived for for the last like week or whatever is thinking about being in the apartment so that's like I don't know, it's suggesting that she's final. It's almost like she's being teleported there. Like this, this the anticipation is like willing her there from this one room to the other. You know, we get a few of those kind of floating camera moments. But if you'd like, we can move on to that horror scene. The film reaches uh, kind of a climax when, um, oh, what is what is her name? 
uh, Karen Silas reveals that she's also a writer. Uh, she writes children's stories. And um, I don't know, Noonan gives her kind of the classic, like, oh, come on, read me something, read me something. And you can tell he's being a little, like, condescending. You can tell he's like, oh, children's stories. Boy, it's not like any children's story he's ever heard. And it was only on the third viewing that I realized he also, in describing the book he's writing, goes on kind of an uncomfortably long rant about, you know, really, like, sticking it to the phonies or whatever. But uh, let's uh, tell the viewers sort of about how the scene plays out and how it kind of really, really changes the film, takes it into t- unexpected territory. Yeah, I think that's a moment where sort of you realize as a viewer that your ideas you have about who these people are are completely wrong, I guess. But also that you realize that the ideas that they have of who each other is is also completely wrong, if that makes any sense. Like, basically, Karen Silas's character starts reading this children's story i use air quotes for this because it's really a terrifying story about like mothers eating babies and sexual assault and really terrifying story in the tone of a children's story Hmm. and and tom noonan's character is just trying to rationalize it all we start to get these shots of like and this is where i think it maybe tips its hands a little too much the film the shots of like the creepy baby dolls and stuff we get the shots of these baby of these little dolls and of this dollhouse and something moving in the dollhouse and like, his face is obscured, the lighting is all weird, even though there was nowhere else for the lighting to be weird. Like, there's no reason for the lighting to feel weird. I like, too, there's a shot from, like, inside the dollhouse of him. Yeah. She's kind of repeatedly shot in, like, a classic, like, uh, like flashlight under the face, sort of, like, telling a scary story style. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy scene, and it's framed in some ways, or, or presented in some ways, almost like a sex scene. Like, she really kind of, like, welcomes him her, him into this, like, deeper space in the house. There's this... She, uh... We've covered already in the film that she sleeps on, like, a fold-out couch, but this, this, this extra, like, draped-over area has this sort of boudoir quality to it. And she's sitting with her legs kind of wide open as she's reading. It's a very... I don't know, there's, there's a sexual carnal sort of quality to how it's played, yeah, for, no, sure. There, there, for sure. There definitely is. There definitely is. And, like, it, it's funny because just moments before, there was a scene where she's, like, laying down in a very seductive manner on this couch. Um, and he's just talking. And he's talking about, I think, people not being sexually compatible. And oh, yeah, just, yeah. There's no, like, it, apart from her posture, there's really no sort of sexual feeling in the scene in that scene but when she's talk doing this children's story talk there is this uh feeling or this there is this different tone that's very sort of seductive in nature um and i think that the 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 sort of mispairings of what the characters are doing with the tone of what's happening is so interesting in those two scenes and i love how like flatly it like ends too like the, the story ends she's given this like it's like a real performance dude. she's like doing like sound effects and shit and like voices <laughs> and he just is like oh that was a children's story jesus christ like he's, he's just he's kind of just like normal nonplussed <laughs> yeah and then right after she starts explaining how she got it published but really it was not a real publisher it was sort of like a pay to pay to publish type situation um and Tom Noonan's character definitely, th- I guess, thinks down on her. It's a bit too harsh, but something along those lines about that, right? You know, right after. So it definitely changes feeling so quickly, and it doesn't like the the movie never becomes so dramatic or 
it only it only allows for any type of connection or 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 melodrama only for a few seconds and then takes you away from it it never sits in any sort of feeling like that for too long at least that was my interpretation of it yeah for sure the characters don't like sit still very long for that sort of thing to happen especially uh uh, karen silas toward the end is like increasingly sort of moving from place to place you know um she like has the cake and everything and then i uh i don't know i love his like just comic obliviousness when she mentions something about like this being a date and he says well this is a date um incredible um it's just incredible like rug pull from a character who you know has has really kind of been sort of a know-it-all throughout this whole thing has really kind of fancied himself uh you know a guy who, who knows a lot um and then again to this movie's ability to, to to turn on a dime right from like you know a laugh at tom newton's expense he delivers this like tearful monologue about like how this is all this is all phony you know like oh i i'm only looking down on you for paying to publish your book to such a degree because i'm not even actually writing a book i haven't written anything in 15 years like i don't know he realizes that she's someone who you know whatever he might think of it as like taking control of her own life and is like writing and publishing and like kind of you know uh i don't know comfortable with her position within the company and everything and he is somebody who you know because he has this inflated idea of himself has just felt more and more every day like he didn't get the memo about how he was supposed to (laughs) you know actually make it happen Uh, it talks about like life feeling like it's passed him by exactly I tr- I try not to think of movies too conceptually because I think that often um and I, I I'm tempted to sometimes too to over intellectualize stuff and it's 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 hard as a critic to not do that because well for two reasons one it makes you feel smart and two I think it's kind of what a lot of critics are are sort of believe that they're supposed to be doing um but i think uh i don't know i i mean i'm not a, i'm not a critic and i wouldn't ever claim to be one but uh i think that's not really oh, necessarily the, the best uh the best approach i think you really kind of have to like you, you don't understand something until you understand the feelings that you're feeling as you're watching it you know what i mean mm. um that's that's often way more interesting like how something that you see or hear makes you feel is mm. often way more meaningful than like oh, a, a conceptual understanding of what the movie's trying to do uh, to take that in a pretentious direction that tolstoy wrote about art in that way said it was supposed to be about i think like uh making re- having the reader like re-experience kind of the feeling that you are or, like or trying to impart, even, even better make them experience a completely new feeling you know what i mean like, which i think this one sure this certainly one does, surely I mean. does. I, I, and Rasan said once and this is something that really and like like really really changed my my life, I guess, is he, and it was a very simple quote. He said in an interview, someone asked him, uh, what do you think about the fact that not, oh, people always complain that they don't understand what you're doing. And I, he said, I'd, ret- I'd much rather someone feels something from my movie than understands something from it. He's like, I would much rather in- invoke emotion than intellectual, and in- like intellectualism. And I was like, and I thought that was very interesting. When I do think about this movie conceptually, I often think about this concept called the simulacrum, which basically basically means to to the act of giving the image of something value rather than the thing itself. And I think that's a, a trap a lot of people in life can fall into, something that I've definitely fallen into for, you know, extended periods of my life where I, 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 I try try to seem a certain way rather than to really be a certain way um and i think that's something that that noonan really is touching on in that final 
sequence, but also throughout the movie in general. Like these characters are are, are so, especially Newton's character, he is trying to seem a certain way and be a certain way because he has some value on what people think about him rather than really feeling like that. Because I think in life, we can get lost between who we are with how we think people perceive us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that this movie really touches on. And I think that what Karen Silas says to him afterward is like so so fucking bleak so so goddamn depressing when she's just like well you know i figure i figure we're all where we are because we want to be you know as if to say like we can we can complain all we want but we made the decisions that got us here right yeah yeah but i don't think i've watched that part of the movie yet without crying um which maybe i shouldn't say on on uh while i'm being recorded but (laughs) god it just it just really pulls the strings you know man like and not in even in a melodramatic way like i'm not i'm not reacting to it because like oh i'm so sad for this character i'm reacting to it because i'm thinking so deeply about life because you know i i i would say there's been there's been a lot of periods in my life at least where i don't feel like i am where i am because i want to be there i feel like i i I am where i am for some reason that i don't really know how and i don't really know how i got there but in 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 reality you know, we're making these decisions for ourselves. You know what I mean? Like at least, at least I've had the, I mean, maybe that's just me. At least I've had the privilege to make these, all these decisions myself, you know? And sometimes, I mean, sometimes I, sometimes in my life, I haven't felt like I am exactly where um, I hoped to be. And, you know, I'm not exactly doing the things that I would hope to be doing, but. Karen Silas's line toward the end of the film uh, and kind of watching this film and things we like kind of back and forth, her, her line got me thinking about, you know, the, the conversation that Peter and Georgia have. I'm better with the characters in your film, uh, their names, <laughs> at least those two. Uh, it, it reminded me of the, char- the, the conversation that Peter and Georgia have, you know, about insurance as a profession and like communications as a, uh, as a field of, uh, of study, uh, you know, and, and were those really the places you wanted to be? So I guess that, uh, you know, gives us a nice kind of point of transition into uh, the discussion of things we like. Um, so obviously a lot of the kind of making up stuff has been covered in your interview with Brett from earlier this year. But just a quick summary for the benefit of our listeners, if you could kind of give some background on kind of how the film came together um, and maybe, uh, you know, what, what directing a film kind of during the pandemic was like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely a, a crazy experience that I'm, hoping to submit myself to again, not the pandemic part, but the making of a movie. Hey, who knows? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) hopefully not. But um, yeah, so I wrote it when I was 19, going on 20. uh, So it'd be 2019. Wrote it over just, I think, the course of four or five days. And then I was like, hey, you know, I was in college. Like, hey, I have all these friends who might want to do this with me. So I started reaching out to a few of them who I'd worked with on shorts in the past. I was like, hey, well, let's try to do something a bit bigger. Um, and a lot of people were like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And then the pandemic hit, and I thought that we'd have to put it aside for a while. But it actually worked out that uh, we were able to figure out a way of of, uh, of shooting it. So, yeah, we shot it with, um, you know, skeleton crew, almost no budget. Um, actually, I mean, that we, we had a, we had enough of a budget to kind of, you know, put things together, which is nice. Like, uh, people people were very generous and... In, in giving to us, which I will, you know, be thankful for, for forever. I think compared to, to most indie movies, even, we really didn't have 
any budget, you know. Uh, so yeah, we shot it over weekends while I was still taking classes, while most of us were taking classes, um, all in the Boston area. And uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a crazy experience, especially with the pandemic. Like one of our actors ended up testing positive for COVID the day before their first call. So we had to oh, fill somebody in last minute, who did a great job. He plays one of the the, the, the truckers in the end, um, the end scene, and he just absolutely killed his name's Liam Krivkov, great actor. But yeah, it definitely led to some some wild experiences, and uh, but really a good time. You know, I really had a great time shooting in with great actors and great people. So I'm interested in how you choose to introduce us to your main character Georgia and her world. We're kind of dropped right into mundane day-to-day reality uh you know we see you're doing some chores canceling appointments how did you decide how you would bring the viewer kind of into the film and accustom them to its rhythm you avoided the the getting in the getting into the swing of the day uh cliches that we talked about making those decisions it's interesting how in the 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 course of making a movie how some decisions can sort of be arbitrary because of how how often things change throughout. Like this one really was a completely different concept when I first started writing it and it you know it changed into what it is now, but my my goal was to sort of create this feeling of I guess trap let's say trapped pleasantness. I I wanted to show that this character like had a, you know, had things like people could be happy in the position that she's in, um, but they're not, or, but some of them aren't, you know, and she isn't. Um, so I wanted to create this feeling almost of, uh, a, a claustrophobic, not knowing what to do. And so that's kind of why that's how that ended up coming out that way. Uh, or the idea of the, the main thing that happens in this movie, she goes on this trip, um, to Boston and I, I, I had at some point thought to just start it when she leaves this house that she's in in the first 16 minutes. But I realized that uh, we need this. We need to have a, a really much deeper understanding of, of the situation she's in, the people who she's around. But also, and I think this is something that um, I haven't I didn't really talk about much with Brett. In fact, when I, read, I, was, I regretted not talking about it with him is uh, I really wanted to focus on like who these other people are like i think one thing that i really was trying to do with this movie is is to give all these i give every character not just meaning but i wanted to give every character a personality and minds of their own where you're thinking ideally you're thinking of what is going on with them too you know they're not just people there to get like i think in a lot of a lot of movies side a lot of there's there's side characters who exist just to tell you more about Georgia and I think or the main character and I think these people do tell you more about Georgia but I think they're much more complicated than that at the risk of sounding too effusive I really think the the opening of this film is just masterful you really nailed uh the portrait of all of these people and I think everybody whether it's just like a reaction shot or just like a little like aside everybody you really get a sense of who these people are I've I've met all of these people these are the, these are the sort of people who you know I it's a yeah, it's a trapped pleasantness. I, I find myself through the first like seventeen minutes of this film, like wrapping my fingers on the table, like oh my god, get the hell out of there. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in kind of how you went about those characterizations because I think I think you do. I think these are definitely characters who are made to understand why Georgia is itching to get away from them. 
uh they're all a little too they, they all pry a little bit they're definitely you know they're, they're not the most interesting people but uh yeah i'm interested in how you how you characterize them well you know avoiding cliches or avoiding you know being too unfair well really what my main goal was and um I don't know how well this comes off. I think it comes off pretty well. I think what I really wanted to do is I, I wanted to give every character there a bigger problem than Georgia actually has. Uh, um, yeah. And if you, if you, maybe if you eventually watch it again, you'll, you'll kind of see that they all do more often either with their marriage or with their, their relationship with these friends, like a loneliness or um, with their jobs. But they're, uh, I want, I, I, wanted to make this sort of this feeling of 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 let's say pleasantness of almost perfectness that you kind of get i wanted you know I, I was hoping that it would feel more like something that they were desperately trying to keep together yeah than sure. just something that exists because i think that's what a lot of a lot of this sort of suburban life is like you know mm. you 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 lose yourself in this desire to keep up something that isn't really there uh-huh. I, I think the electric wine opener not working is such a wonderful touch and like the intercut between like and i'm glad that you don't see him say like ah damn thing doesn't work or something you just it cuts back to him like unscrewing it uh, such a such a good jack I, I i laughed out loud honestly and there's this is this is something that we'll probably talk about later but there's a scene later where georgia sneezes and then there's this one and there's maybe a few others here and there where things just sort of just happen you know, really? No. Like I, I didn't, I, I didn't tell, I didn't tell Emma, Emma Coleman. She's a, I mean, she probably could have, maybe. I don't. She's a great actress, but um, I didn't tell her to sneeze. She just sneezed, you know. And I was like, well, I'm going to use this. We we couldn't find the batteries for the electric wine opener on that <laughs> day. So funny, right? So I, in my head, that was just going to be a funny moment, but then it didn't work. I mean, I think it's much better because it doesn't work because you we had this it's other other I, I, other idea instead. But I think that's really. I think it's often a good thing, you know, when when you have to when things force you to rethink it. I think that happens. It happens a lot on on, on independent film sets, other other ones I've been on too, where certain things don't work out how you want to, so you have to you're forced to rethink them, um, and in doing so, you have to come up with a with a better idea uh, than the one you started with. Uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I, I to the point too again of like um, you know keeping up appearances and like straining to keep this thing together. It's such a juxtaposition with the kind of the sequence that that bookends you know the other end of the film with uh, you know these these truckers who spend most of their time apart but have this like wonderful community that they can kind of bring together at a moment's notice that feels spontaneous and they really enjoy spending time around one another. And then you have the alternative. You have, you know, oh, we, we do this every week because it's on the calendar. And, you know, it's on the calendar in pen, not pencil. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I, would, I, would, um, I would suggest to any, any, any viewer, um, and I think this, like, um, that, that scene, the end scene that you're talking about, there, there is this beautiful togetherness in that scene that I, that I really am glad that we were able to capture. But um, I think... It's also a little bit more complicated than just the togetherness, you know. There's there's some there's some little issues there, you know, that they're sort of also covering up, but in a different way. I think that's one thing that I kind of wanted to do with all these three. There's so there's the three different sections is that uh, they all have their own issues as well, you know. 
that they're all that they're, they're they all have their own things that they're dealing with. It's a good point to transition into the kind of city sequence of the film. So obviously for for Georgia, the the Boston setting here is kind of an instantly memorable one. You know, for the character, it's her first time in the city. It's her first time in an apartment anywhere. I'm just interested. Um, you know, were you were you using just kind of what you had on hand, or did you uh, did you scout this location for any sort of specific uh, qualities that you wanted to capture? Any specific kind of architecture? Oh no, this was definitely using what I had on hand, but also making the the specific choice to go with this one over something um, a little different. I definitely wanted to be in this sort of city feel that feels so much different than the scene that comes right before. So Andrew Bajalski watched this movie, which was amazing to me. I, if you told me before I made this movie that that would happen, I would tell you that you're lying to me uh, because I, I, I'm such a big uh, fan of his. And he, he, he really laughed at that, uh, um, that line where she says, this is my first time in an apartment. But yeah, he, uh, he thought that it worked. In, I've been to Vermont a couple times and I was looking on a, on a map of where in the film she's from, right? Mm. And obviously she could have seen an apartment, but it's very, very possible that she could have never been in one. I like that the lobby is like very much like a classic. Uh, it, it, it's like a, it's a type of room that only exists in an apartment building, you know? So it's very much like a nice uh, entry into that sort and of And there's that moment where she struggles to get in with her bag, which is not something that... Uh, you know, you don't have those space issues in, in suburban Vermont. You make an appearance. Um, uh, Georgia is headed to Boston uh, to meet up with uh, a guy she's met on the Internet. Uh, much like in what happened was parties are sort of in disagreement on whether or not it's a date. But um, I, so first, my first question is, uh, I guess, about the decision to cast yourself here. You know, was that, uh, uh, well, can't find anybody who I like better for the role? Or was this, uh, you know, a role that you, uh, you know, saw some of yourself in perhaps? Uh, I hate name dropping, but I have to. I have to, in this specific scenario, that was actually uh, that decision was made with the help of uh, Frank Ross. I, I I wasn't planning at the beginning to play the character. I thought, oh, I'd cast someone else because uh, because I hadn't really acted much before. I, I think the last time I'd acted was in um, like a short film I made in high school, and I didn't really do a good job. Um, so don't go find that one. But I was. Thinking about it, and I, I just didn't really think that the people who auditioned were right for the role. Like, there were some people who were really good actors, but they weren't perfectly right for the role. And I, I was talking to Frank, and Frank was like, if you can play a character in your movie, then you should do that. And I was like, I don't think you mean that because you've never seen me act. <laughs> and he was like, no, I mean it. You should do it. And I was like, okay. That's kind of how that came about was uh, with his advice. Um, and I realized if I'm, if I'm being completely honest, I definitely had, uh, I, I definitely thought as I was writing it that uh, it's a role that I could play because of the fact that, you know, it's so much, in, so, in some ways it's so much like me, in some ways not at all. Like I'm not a musician like Peter is, but um, I think in, in other ways we're, we're uh, you know, we're somewhat similar. It's interesting. Uh, the Frank V. Ross cast himself as such an unlikable character and quietly unbi. <laughs> sort of funny that he he would have, he would have cast himself like that. Yeah, yeah I think I think um, Peter's I think Peter's pretty unlike. I don't know. I think he's unlikable. But he, he 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 has parts that are you know 
He's definitely not a, a, a purely likable character. You don't, you didn't cast yourself as like a perfect guy. Not that you cast yourself as some sort of villain, like Frank Firas sort of doesn't quietly on by, but you cast yourself as sort of a complicated character, which I like. Like, I especially like that you cast yourself as a character whose jokes don't land, as a guy whose jokes don't land. I, I like that. And I especially like the weird non sequitur when she wakes up and you talk about like eating worms. I was like, hell yeah. This, uh, it reminds me of something out of like, uh, The Color Wheel. Have you ever seen that film? I have not actually, uh, but I probably, uh, I will I now. I see, I, I just don't think that I would. Well, two things. I don't think I'd ever write a perfectly likable character, you know. Um, maybe I will for some. Maybe I'll, something will change and I will. But um, I also don't think that I can play a perfectly likable character. Uh, it's a lot of would, pressure. It's a lot of pressure, exactly. And uh, it's a lot of sort of being something that you really aren't. And uh, I'll leave that to the great actors, you know. Yeah. So to what extent is his, um, you know, is the character's work in music kind of inspired by your work in film? You know, I'm thinking in particular of the kind of play me something moment. Um, you know, you're a you're a filmmaker. I, in your life, is there any like presumption on the part of other people? Uh, you know, oh, anything I would have seen or, or is there I, for me? I don't know. Even the question like, what's your favorite movie? Uh, if, if you're known to people as like a movie person. Can yeah. Be kind of yeah. Ah, it always comes up that I, I, I'm a movie person. And every time and I, I it always comes up. I mean, I always end up bringing it up, uh, but I always regret it immediately when I do because I don't know. A lot of a lot of people, unfortunately, don't know who John Cassavetes is or don't know who um, Marinade is or um, Frank, Frank Ross. Frank Ross, yeah, or Brisson. Um And I, I wish everybody did, um, but unfortunately, that that isn't the case. Um, but yeah, I would say definitely there is some some there are some parts. Let's say in that in that in in writing that script where i was definitely uh pulling pretty closely to different things that i was feeling but but changing it you know and changing it in ways to make it either more interesting in a sort of emotional sense or thematic sense um right there's a line where, where georgia asks me like something along the lines of when's the last time you made something and i basically say i haven't um i keep starting and then stopping because it's it ends up being shit uh can i can i say that on, on oh, the podcast? Yeah, yeah. okay cool <laughs> um because it ends up being shit um and i've definitely experienced that a lot and i've also ex- like experienced these and i think filmmakers always have to deal with this more than i think many other types of artists but like where external factors are what's what's stopping you from making something like either money or um locations or whatever and i think that can it, that that can be really frustrating but um I, I i would say that my own personal connections and experiences that line up with peter's aren't exactly um the most meaningful aspects of what peter's saying i think what yeah. what what he's what he's saying and what he's doing are um i think meaningful outside of my own experiences at least i hope so so Peter's roommate returns somewhat unexpectedly and uh, it kind of shares a story that without spoiling kind of where the conversation between Peter and Georgia goes, I'll say it, it plays a little like a version of the events we've just watched. Um, would you say that's fair to say? I would say definitely. Yeah. I would say, and this is really what um, I'm, I was, this is a part of what I was trying to get at here is that there, there's a type of person that could experience what Peter and Georgia just experienced, right? 
and turn it into that, you know, but these two characters don't, and he does. And that's, that's what I think is interesting. Cause really like, like as, as a, from, if you're just looking at what happens and what he says, there's, there's a lot of parallel there. Um, so one imagines the episode played out pretty differently based on how he talks about it, but yeah. Exactly. I, I what I, what I was hoping to kind of get at right there, and in, in, in different parts of the movie as well, is just this uh, sort of the fact that much of what happens in our lives, we I, I mean, and anything that happens, we give our own meaning to. Two people can can experience the same exact thing, but have completely different understandings of what's happening. And I think that's one of the most beautiful, but also one of the most sometimes frustrating, sometimes complicated thing about life is this i guess subjectivity of it which is pretty sounds pretty dumb when you say it like that so that's why um what my 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 struggles with saying this in words is is uh, is showing is like when you try to summarize something much like a critic trying to summarize what happened was you were you you not only just lose something like you not only just losing an amount of information you're also just changing it entirely and uh that's something that I was trying to touch on at different points in this movie as well. I'd say it's like mounting a butterfly in a certain respect, right? Like even if you've really, even if it's like, oh wow, this like beautiful thing on the wall, it's like, well, I've like, I've like killed this. I've made this, this now, it now looks like this one thing. I've now definitively said, this is, this is this. There's something, there's something much more pleasant about just sort of letting a film live in your mind and kind of being open to like interpretations for sure. I, I don't know. I find that I write about film because like, it's a good way to get me to stop thinking about like things that have obsessed me for me, like putting it down on like paper. And I don't know it's, it's, it's the wrong way to think about the films for sure. It almost feels like a sense of like, not ownership, but it just feels like I can put it on the shelf, like a, like a book. If I've like gotten down, um, if I've, you know, really just finally everything that I wanted to say about a subject, if I can just kind of try to put it in a piece. I don't know if you've ever read any of my essays, but they're all they're they're not they're nonsense. They go off in a million different directions because I'm trying to just everything I've ever thought about Clint Eastwood or whomever has to go into the piece. And I think they end up sometimes coherent, but you no, know, they definitely I, do. I think you're being a little too hard on yourself there. I think really what I was what I was trying to stress with what I said about critics was more that uh, how hard it how hard of a job it is to do well. Um, oh, yeah. hundred percent. You know. But I think that's a big problem in, in, in film writing as it is in everything else. In filmmaking, even, you know, they stop thinking right at the point where they might start disagreeing with themselves. You know what I mean? Um, because people don't want to have to deal with the cognitive dissonance or, or whatever it is. Um, and I think that's something that, that happens to a lot of filmmakers. A lot of it happens to me sometimes where the moment I get frustrated about something, I just put it to this. I know I don't think about it at all anymore. But I think that's something that uh, I would, uh, I guess, ask for people to to try to, and I try, I guess that's something that I try myself to not do. Let's say that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's people sell, people sell themselves and like the work and like the reader short when they stop short of the contradicting themselves, because like art is only good if it's full of like paradox and full of like contradictions and makes you, I don't know, wrestle with things the the best filmmakers are people who are like simultaneously obsessed with and repulsed by the sort of things they capture so the film's final extended sequence takes place in a much different location than the one that started it uh you know we begin in a kind of suburban home and here we're in a uh, truck stop and you know i mentioned before that here the interactions have a different sort of tone to them they seem a little 
people seem to have an easier way interacting with one another but there is sort of a sense of there is sort of a sense of melancholy there is sort of a sense of maybe like i don't know the future disappearing around them and i'm thinking in particular of the discussion of like self-driving trucks and what that might mean for the future of truckers um could you tell me about um, that topic and, and, and kind of what it means for the themes of the film and how it might resonate with Georgia? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, well, in, in a lot of ways, as you were saying, that, that last scene is, is, is designed to contradict a lot the, the beginning of the movie, um, but also agree with it in some ways. And I think that's what I, what, what I was trying to do there. But specifically with that talk, I, 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 it started as, as, a, as just a joke. Um, where I, I wanted these these characters to kind of just make this joke about how their entire identity is trucking. So what's going to happen when that goes away? But that that the idea was that that was a joke that wasn't true at all because they're 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 much more complex than than uh, the trucking is. But it kind of became this, uh, and I guess it, it became something else. And really, what I was trying to focus on is the tone at, with which they were talking about this, you know impending huge life change you know this where this thing that could happen that could completely force them to rethink their their life re-situate themselves in the world um but it was just spoken about as a joke in passing a few times you know i think the the what I think what with georgia the, the what she resonates to is less this talking about less this less the idea of the of the automated trucks and more the the way they were talking about the automated trucks does that make sense um i think so yeah i mean she's certainly someone who is kind of wondering what what the future holds for and someone has a lot of kind of anxiety around like her job in particular i mean obviously you couldn't have known about open ai uh when you wrote the film but i mean obviously now uh discussions of being kind of automated out of your job and what um, what the future looks like for you from that perspective kind of take on a new residence i think too it speaks to um I, I think the kind of joking way they talk about it they're not too broken up about it they're kind of they're joking around like hey maybe next time you see me i won't be a trucker or whatever i they, they i think they suggest a way of looking at an uncertain future from a you know slightly more positive perspective that Georgia might have been inclined to when she was talking to Peter earlier in the film. Maybe. Yeah, and, and because because in this conversation, the situ the situation is created by their their role as truckers, right? And it's such a like you were saying, it's such a nice feeling that might be just completely gone. You know, the, this con- the, the conversation that they're in may like probably will never happen if they're not doing this again. You know what I mean? Um, this nice, this, this, this feeling that was, this nice feeling that was created so de- is so dependent on such a arbitrary fleeting thing, if that makes any sense. Definitely. And I think it definitely comes across. Um, I had a concluding question, and I, this might be like an uncomfortable question, but I, in one of your DMs, I think you mentioned, um, you know, you, you thanked me for overlooking the film's flaws, I think. And I'm interested, uh, you know, to your mind, uh, what, what, what do you think um, you would do differently, given the chance to do again? And maybe what have you learned to do differently from the, the experience? No, nah, that's not uncomfortable at all to talk about. I think uh, I'm definitely aware that, uh, that there are some things that I wish I'd done differently. I, I think the sound could be a bit better throughout. Um, 
I think some of the the shots can maybe be framed a little bit more precisely. Um, but I think that's just, that's kind of um, that's kind of always going to happen when you're when you're making movies in this you know micro budget indie way. And I I, tr- I, I truly believe that it's a, a better thing than it is a worse thing. Than it is, it's a it's a good thing more than it's a bad thing. Because so many, like I was talking about with the electric wine opener and the sneeze and whatever, but so many moments come out of these flaws that actually can be, you know, much more interesting and much more um, meaningful. But also just more generally, I think there's some things that I learned while making this film that are just going to inform the next one. And that's part of the process. I think that if you don't learn something, and I think the person who learns the most in a film in, a, in the filmmaking process is the filmmaker you know like I think I uh I'm a completely different person after making this one and I, I you know I hope that uh someone watching this is slightly a different person from it too but I know that I definitely am even I think even with the with any flaws that there are I just hope that you know the viewer can try to look a little under the surface and think a little bit deeper when they're watching this movie um because I think that there is a lot to think about and a lot to feel when you're watching this movie that you have to pay attention to, to see. Awesome. Uh, and on that note, uh, do you want to share with the viewers some details about uh, the upcoming premiere of the film and any other ways they might be able to get in touch with you or see the film? Yeah. Um, we're going to premiere in just, uh, well, 13 days from recording this and uh, you know, even fewer went from posting this uh, on May 17th. Um, at 5.15 p.m. here in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Independent Film Festival. Think PIFF.com to get more information on that. It'll be the first time this movie plays uh, in front of a real theater crowd, and uh, I'm really excited for it. Um, but if you can't make it, uh, please like, uh, reach out to me on Twitter or Letterboxd, and uh, um, I'm happy to try to make things work. But uh, I, think, I think soon it'll be available for more people to see. Uh, once we hopefully continue this uh, film festival run. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Adi. Hope to have you on Split Picks again. Oh, no, thank, thank you for having me. It's honestly been a pleasure just chatting. It's been a while since I uh, talked about what happened was and uh, my movie as well, Things You Like.